If you're not doing any kind of training, I feel like you're really missing out on a huge opportunity to improve that animal's quality of life. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast that's going to bring you some scintillating cetacean the Rossafari Podcast. Now, y'all, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you listen to Rossafari Zoo News, you definitely know this. This month is June. Okay, that's the part that hopefully you all know. But June is World Oceans Month. And as such, I thought it would be cool to bring you a podcast about some animals that, that live in the ocean. Either that, or when I was on a recent road trip doing some other interviews, I thought to myself, hey, I should shoot out to Indianapolis and talk to Erica Allen, who was so amazing the last time she was on my podcast. And it just so happened that uh, the release date naturally fell during World Oceans Month, and I got lucky. One or the other, you can choose. Anyway, we'll talk more about the episode in a minute, but first I want to remind y'all to make sure that you're following along at Ross Safari on Instagram and Facebook, at Ross Safari Pod on TikTok. I promise eventually I'm going to start doing the things that I keep saying I'm going to do. I'll, I'll get there. Y'all can hold me accountable. It's fine. It's fine. We'll get there. But, and of course, the website is rossafari.com, where you can learn about me, see photos, and uh, listen to the podcast. And, of course, you can always support the podcast, patreon.com slash rossafari. I am incredibly grateful to all of my current patrons. Uh, Y'all, I love you. Thank you so much. As a matter of fact, it's thanks to those patrons that you may notice that uh, my voice sounds even richer and better than it ever has on this podcast before. And no, I don't mean it sounds richer because I'm getting more money from patrons. This is a different kind of rich, y'all. But the truth is, this is the first episode of Safari being recorded using a Shure SM7B microphone, which is the top microphone used by podcasters and broadcasters all around the country. So yeah. Patrons really do help make a difference, and I am so grateful to you all. Thank you so much for continuing to support the pod and helping me do what I do here at a professional level. All right, y'all. Now, as I mentioned, my guest this week is Erica Allen of the Indianapolis Zoo. Erica's a senior marine mammal trainer there, and you may recognize the name from episode 38, I Am the Walrus. If you haven't heard that episode yet, make sure you listen to it. Not only is Erica an incredible guest, but the walruses that we talk about, I mean, it's just so cool. They are such amazing animals. But speaking of how amazing of a guest Erica is, um, I let her take charge of this episode, basically. It's less an interview than what you're used to hearing from me and more me just learning along with y'all. Uh, Erica came prepared and um, I was certainly not going to get in her way. 
Erica is actually the kind of person who should be hosting her own podcast because she's just amazing at this and y'all are going to fall absolutely in love with her and the dolphins that she's here to tell you about this week. And definitely make sure you stay tuned after the main interview because there may or may not be some audio from a certain little experience I got to have with a couple of dolphins at the Indianapolis Zoo. Spoiler alert, there is. There definitely is. So this episode goes deep into dolphins. Deep into the pool? I don't know. Anyway, we talk about some stuff that you may not have considered when you've learned about or heard about dolphins before. How do they sleep? How do they communicate? Dolphin nipples! I mean, we get into it, y'all. This one is fascinating. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Erica Allen, Senior Marine Mammal Trainer at the Indianapolis Zoo. All right, so uh, welcome back, Erica. How are you? Thanks, I'm great. Good, glad to hear it. For the people who are new, um, go ahead and tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Uh, My name is Erica, and I'm a senior marine mammal trainer. We're here at the Indianapolis Zoo, where I work with our collection of marine mammals. Yes, you do. It is so awesome here. Um, And so, what room are we in right now? We are in our dolphin classroom. So, it's just adjacent to our dolphin pools, and this is where we do a lot of the educational programming for um, all of our dolphin stuff. Absolutely. And like you said, it's right next to the dolphin pool. So, uh... Let's start off by talking about, we're going to get into the animals, but let's actually start off by talking about the space, because I just think this place is so cool and so beautiful. And we were just hanging out with some of your dolphins, which was amazing. Um, And so talk to me about this space and how you guys use it. Uh, Not just the classroom, obviously, but, you know, the area in general. Yeah. So our uh, dolphin building was here when we first opened the zoo in 1988. So it's been here for quite a while. And we have... Um, A lot of offices here. We have a huge fish kitchen where we prep all of the animals' diets at the start of every day. Um, We have locker rooms. And then, of course, the biggest part of the building is going to be our our actual dolphin housing area. So we have uh, four pools total that house our dolphins uh, with gates kind of in between each pool. So we have the options to have dolphins in any area uh, of their habitat. The largest pool actually also has an underwater viewing space, which is really cool. It's pretty unique for dolphins. It's actually a large dome, so you can walk out and be pretty much have dolphins swimming completely all around you. They're swimming up over you and next to you and underneath you, and it's a really cool way to kind of immerse yourself into their environment and get a chance to see them really up close underwater. Yeah, and that is a really amazing space. I I can't remember if I said this on the last episode, but hey, it's a quick story. Uh, But my first time here, I was in the underwater viewing space for the dolphins, and I was talking to a friend, and all of a sudden, I heard somebody go, John Rossi, is that you? And I looked around, and there was no one there. And I was like, what? (laughs) And suddenly, turning around the corner was a, um, a director, an artistic director in the theater world that I have worked with before at a very small theater in central Pennsylvania. And he lives in New York City, and he just happened to be here visiting his wife doing a contract, and they came to the zoo on the same day off that I was here on the day off, and uh, heard my voice echoing because the, the it echoes pretty effectively in there. And uh, apparently, the uh, the tone of my voice is very echoey, uh, <laughs> and possibly kind of annoying, whatever. 
Um, and so, yeah, and I just, there was this moment, though, where I'm just standing alone with dolphins swimming all around me, and I hear John Rossi, and I was like, God? <laughs> wow, what a small world. Yeah, I know, seriously, it was really crazy. But um, my stories aren't nearly as interesting as yours, so let's get to it. Today, we are really here to talk about the dolphins, which is why I want to start off by asking you about the walruses. We we did an episode about the walruses, and um, if you guys haven't checked that out yet, go back and listen. Uh, they are amazing animals, and Erica is an amazing educator, and you'll you'll learn a lot about walruses or walren. I'm still not sure. Um, and uh, so so give me a little update. How are the walruses doing? Tell me things. They are fantastic. Um, they're they're still so young. Um, actually, one of them just celebrated his fourth birthday. Woo! Yep, and the other one is um, going to be four at the beginning of next month. So we've got a pretty big celebration planned. Um, but because they're so young, they're just learning things really, really quickly. They're little sponges, and this is a really, really fun and exciting time to work with them. So I'm sure even just from last time you were here, they have learned so many more things. They're learning how to come out onto the public path so they can actually get up close in front of our guests. Seriously? Yes. Okay, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. We're that's really amazing. excited about that. Yeah, meeting them was I, I get to meet a lot of animals uh doing this podcast, but but meeting walruses was, was walruses. Warren, I'm still really focused on that. It was just a really exciting time. Um they are amazing animals. Getting them out on the path is so cool. That's do you, do you have any idea when that's gonna be a thing yet? Uh we're doing it now. Um they're coming all the way out to the path now where we don't really have um like a scheduled time for it, so we can't ever promise that it's gonna happen on a certain day at a certain time. But certainly, if you happen to be visiting the zoo and you're in the walrus area, there is a chance that you might get to see them up close. Seriously, coolest thing I have heard in a long time. That's amazing. <laughs> um, cool. And, and they're doing well. Health is good. All the, all the things. Yeah, they're healthy. They're thriving. They're growing. I'm sure they're a couple hundred pounds more than the last time you saw them. That's amazing. Awesome. So good to know that they're still doing well. Um, cool. So let's, let's get to dolphins. And I think what I'm going to do, I never do this, but you're really an amazing educator. So I'm just going to turn this over to you. Talk to me about dolphins and I'll ask questions if I have any. Great. Um, well, my experience with dolphins began with an internship in Hawaii. So I was really fortunate to get the chance to live in Hawaii for a while. I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of my first experience being up close with dolphins and working with them. Um, and it was fantastic. I was hooked. And that's what really got me into marine mammals in the first place. Following that internship, I ended up in Indianapolis doing a second internship. And uh, again, you know, the stars aligned. I was really fortunate to end up with a paid position here in Indianapolis following that internship. So I've had a lot of marine mammal experience here, but dolphins is really what got me into it. Um, you know what? I'm just going to interrupt for one second. Before yeah. I say it. So I have to tell you, you weren't lucky. You're really good at what you do. And I think I, I genuinely think this is more important that, that people understand this in general. Um, I'm not just complimenting you. But um, like I said, I've, I've done a lot of interviews. I talk to a lot of people. And so many people comment on just the way that you educate the way. And I see you with your dolphins. I've, I've watched you interact with, with them and the walrus. And you are just, you're really good at what you do. And I think that it's important that people realize that that, that matters, you know. Um, I, I talk to a lot of amazing people that, that 
do amazing work and, and say that they're lucky for it. And I totally get what you mean, but you are awesome at what you do. And, and don't, don't forget that fact. Well, you know? thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I think it is kind of under undervalued how skilled zookeepers are. It's a very, very special skill set to be able to work well with animals, also educate the public. And a lot of us do have really extensive schooling. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Okay. Enough about you. Dolphins. Go. Okay. Let me teach, <laughs> teach everybody about some dolphins. Um, so dolphins are what we call cetaceans. And cetaceans are one type of marine mammal. And uh, it's basically everything that you think of uh, in terms of whales and dolphins. Um, so everything that looks like that. So everything from uh, a sperm whale, a beluga whale, uh, to the common bottlenose dolphin that you see in most facilities that house dolphins. So cetaceans are broken up into uh, mysticetes and odontocetes. Mysticetes are going to be your baleen whales. So those are the whales that have the big baleen uh, kind of filters. They typically feed off of krill, um, smaller sea life. And then odontocetes are the toothed whales. So that's going to be any whale dolphin that has teeth in their mouth. So you think of like an animal like a killer whale or a dolphin. Uh, there's actually around 40 different species of dolphins, um, so there's great variety within that family. Um, here at the zoo, we have the Atlantic bottlenose dolphins, um, and that's probably one of the most common type of dolphin you're going to see in a facility. Um, they are a coastal, uh, we have a coastal ecotype here, so they thrive in shallower waters, um, which makes it really effective for us to be able to care for them in our facilities here. Um, they have really, really unique social structures. A lot of people think of dolphins swimming out in the wild. They think of a huge pod of dolphins, sometimes hundreds or thousands of individuals. But dolphins actually have a social hierarchy, and they also have what's known as fission-fusion society. So that's also seen in animals like chimpanzees and elephants. And uh, this means that they sometimes come together to form large groups, and then they'll also break apart and form smaller groupings. A lot of times you'll see mothers with their calves, or a lot of female-type groupings. Those will be the larger groupings. And the males, once they reach sexual maturity, they'll either kind of break off on their own and do their own thing and join the larger groups for mating, or they'll form a really, really close bond with one to two other males of similar age. And then they'll kind of just hang out with those other males for, for the majority of their life. Um, that's really important because of how they hunt and how they live. They use a lot of strategy. They use a lot of teamwork, which is oftentimes why you'll see those groups of dolphins together. So their social dynamics are really cool, really interesting. And as animal trainers, we really are also animal behaviorists because we're watching our dolphins here at the zoo and we're constantly analyzing their social interactions with one another because we want to make sure that we're replicating that normal, healthy, vision fusion type dynamic that we see with dolphins in the wild. Uh, we do get a lot of questions um, about our dolphins here at the zoo. So I kind of want to go over a few things that are like frequently asked questions with the dolphins. So You're doing all my work for me. This yeah. is great. All right. Ask yourself some questions. <laughs> um, so we get a lot of questions about the sounds that the dolphins make. Or people just come up to us and start mimicking the dolphin sounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I um, bet you love that. Or they just mimic it to the dolphins, thinking that the dolphins are going to talk back to them. Um, Have you ever been like, do you know what you just said in dolphin? <laughs> could really mess with someone. That I way. wish I knew dolphin. <laughs> I really would make my job a lot easier if I could talk in dolphin, let me tell you that much. But the truth is we don't really know 
what they're saying. We don't fully understand it. So there's a lot of ongoing research. But one thing that we feel like we have a pretty good grasp on is that all dolphins have what's called a signature whistle. So it's a whistling sound that is unique to every single individual animal. So it's kind of like their name, if you will. It's a way for them to identify themselves and say, this is me, this is me, this is who I am. So that others can, can know that individual. And they, they're excellent at remembering um, all these different sounds. So that helps again in their fission fusion. They break apart. They come back together. They all call their own names and be like, oh, yeah, I remember you. Um, okay, wait, hold on for a second. So that's amazing. And I had no clue that that was a thing. So first of all, thanks for that. Um, second of all, like, is it, ba- do you know if it's based on, on pitch or is it like a whole sequence of noises? Or- it's usually a sequence. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. They've done research with dolphins that have kind of moved to different facilities and then they played back their signature whistle and they've been able to see some recognition. Um, that people remember who that animal was. It's also very useful for calves, young calves with their mothers. Um, so they'll naturally get kind of separated in a large group. And, and oftentimes the aunties, if you will, the other adult females will kind of help share the burden in nursing and caring for all of the offspring in the group. Um, but when mom's looking for baby, all it takes is for baby to call their unique signature whistle and mom can know straight to go to them and can find them that way. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's just kind of a small taste of like, how cool their communication is and and also shows us just how much we still have to learn about them. The fact that they make a lot of cool vocalizations um, and and we really don't know a lot about it. Um, another thing I think people maybe don't quite realize is that dolphins actually don't have vocal cords. So all of these sounds that you're hearing them make are actually coming from their blowhole. They have air sacs just surrounding their blowhole and they can manipulate that, manipulate how they're expelling the air through their blowhole And that's going to be what creates that large variety of sounds they make. They can make squawking type sounds, clicking sounds, whistling sounds, even kind of raspberry farting type sounds. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I forgot that you know this. You you know the tone of this podcast very well. So, so yeah. So, that's all all that sound is coming from the blowhole. They can make all those noises with their mouth closed because none of it is coming from their mouth. It's all coming from the top of their head. That's crazy because they usually open their mouth when they're making some of the sound. Yeah, they um, oftentimes do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's really cool when we do our programs with the dolphins that we can actually ask them to hold their mouth closed and make the sounds. So, we can really <laughs> demonstrate to people, like, hey, look, it's not actually coming from their mouth, even though it looks like it is. That's amazing. Um, another question that we get asked about a lot um, is their coloring. Um, and sometimes it looks like it could be really hard to tell the dolphins apart from one another because they're all just kind of that gray color. But if you look closely, you get a chance to spend some time with them, especially in like the underwater viewing dome. You get a good look at all sides of their body. So you can see that they're actually not just all gray. A lot of them have uh, what I like to call freckles or just different little spots on them that we can kind of use to help identify individuals. But what they all do share in common is what we call countershading. So the top part of their body is going to be darker in color, usually uh, some shade of gray. And then their bellies are going to be lighter colored, either whitish, sometimes a little pinkish. And there's kind of a fade from the top to the bottom. So that's actually a really unique type of camouflage for these guys in their environment. So say you are a predator and you're swimming up at the surface, and you're looking down for your prey, you're going to see the dark gray top of the dolphin's back, and it's going to blend in with the darker bottom of the ocean. And the opposite, if you're swimming underneath them and you look up, their lighter belly is going to blend in with the the lightness of the sky. 
or uh, the shallower water. So that's a good way for them to not only kind of camouflage themselves from a potential predator, but also be able to stay unseen when they're hunting for their own prey. So that's kind of a cool type of camouflage that not a lot of people think about uh, when you think about animals that live in the ocean, because a lot of fish tend to have brighter colors. They want to stand out for different reasons, and dolphins, other animals like sharks, they definitely want to blend in just a little bit more. Makes sense. Uh, we get asked a lot of questions about how the dolphins sleep. Uh, they definitely do need to sleep. They need to rest, um, but they do so in a really different way, really unique way. And there's been some studies about this as well. So dolphins have um, a two-hemisphere brain, just like we do. They have a left brain and a right brain. And um, we found that they actually tend to rest only half of their brain at a time. Okay. So they don't fall into a deep unconscious sleep like we do. And the main reason for that is that they are conscious breathers. So they need to actually tell themselves to take a breath. They won't just autonomically breathe if they fall into a deep sleep like that. So um, they need to be able to come up to the surface and take a breath periodically, and they need to uh, be alert enough to do that. So that's why they'll kind of rest one side of their brain at a time, and they do sleep approximately 30% of the day, but they'll do it in a uh, course of shorter kind of catnaps throughout the day. They'll kind of rest when they have a chance. And the main way we can tell that they're resting, they continue to swim, they continue normal behaviors, they're breathing, they're swimming, but we can tell because usually one eye is closed. (laughs) So if their left eye is closed, it means they're resting the right side of their brain. Sure. That's interesting. Now, I'm I'm by no means a neurologist, but I know that we use the different hemispheres of our brain for different things. So, like, I don't even know how to ask this question, but other than the obvious, the eye thing that you mentioned, um, like, is there, will they act differently when they're resting, say, their right side or their left side of their brain or... Not necessarily, um, like on opposite sides, only we can tell because the the opposite eye is closed. Um, But they'll usually just kind of in general sort of slow down. They'll just have kind of a slower swim. They'll be a little bit more methodical about how they're doing things. Um, They don't want to expend any extra energy. They need to be just alert enough to make sure they're not going to run into something or be vulnerable to a predator and to remember to breathe. That's amazing. That's Wow, very cool. Yeah, it is really unique. And I think something a lot of people don't know, and I think it's really smart of people to even think to ask that question. Yeah, I would not have. I'm I'm glad you're asking your own questions here. This is good. So dolphins are mammals. And like I mentioned before, they got to come up to the surface to take a breath. They're air breathers. So that's kind of the main thing that differentiates an animal that lives in the ocean that is a mammal, for example, a dolphin, versus a fish is they're going to have to come up and uh, breathe air at the surface. And that's why they have those conveniently placed blowholes right on top of their head. Um, But also being a mammal means they're going to give live birth. Um, That's not exclusive to mammals, but um, it is something that all mammals share in common. So dolphins do give live birth, and um, they have um, their gestation is about a year. So it's a pretty long gestation. They can breed at any time of year, but there are a couple of really cool adaptations for their calves. So being a mammal and being born underwater can be problematic. They have to they have to know how to swim immediately. They have to know how to get to the surface for a breath immediately. They have to just be born knowing all of those things. Um, and they're they're pretty awesome at it. Uh, a healthy dolphin birth is going to actually be born tail first. So the opposite of what you would think. 
They're, um, all of their fins are very soft. They're kind of floppy and curled over, and it takes a while for them to kind of harden up and, and look normal, um, but that helps with the delivery. You don't, definitely don't want some pokey tail flukes coming out first. Um, but the main challenge is going to be, being mammals, they provide milk for their young. So nursing underwater is something that dolphins have adapted really fantastically for. Oh, I am so intrigued right now. I've never thought of any of this. Tell, yeah. tell me all the things. Yeah. So we've been lucky enough to have several dolphins uh, born here right at the zoo, and I've been able to be a part of that. We do a lot of observations um, prior to the birth as well as immediately following. And one of those things is we document all instances of nursing and the duration of nursing as well. So how this works is it's, it's really incredible is that the dolphins are born with, they've got a little tongue inside of their mouth, and not everybody can do this, but some humans can do it. They actually roll their tongue. I can totally do that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, a lot of people can, can do it. Can you roll your tongue? I can roll my tongue, right. yes. These are the hard-hitting questions that I brought to the end <laughs> yes. so, yes. And all baby dolphins can roll their tongues, too. And their tongues are adapted, so along either side of their tongue, they have what we call fringe. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like little papillae kind of that just hang off of either side of their tongue. When they roll their tongue, they interlock these papillae like a zipper. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, and it forms a, like a complete seal. So when they latch on underwater, they're going to be swimming and nursing at the same time. They'll latch on and they'll form this seal with their tongue zipper. And that way they can actually nurse and collect milk from the mother without ingesting any seawater. I'm speechless. That's <sighs> truly one of the coolest adaptations I have ever heard of. Aren't that, they incredible? It is really amazing. cool to think of. What's also really cool is that the fringe never completely goes away. So even in our adult dolphins, we can see it. And so that's kind of a fun thing to be able to show like zoo visitors and help explain how that works. Um, they don't typically nurse for very long periods at a time. We'll see maybe between two to 10 seconds of nursing okay. at a time. So they're pretty much round the clock getting short little bouts of nursing in. Um, we actually see more nursing right at the very beginning. And then the calf eventually learns how to be more efficient and get more milk. And we'll see nursing duration drop off after a week or so. Um, but they will continue to nurse for their mom for at least a year. Uh, sometimes up to three or more years. Wow. But as early as maybe around three to four months, they'll also start learning how to, to eat solid food and things like fish. Very cool. Um, okay, so uh, since we're talking about nursing, I have seen a lot of like dolphin bellies, and I've I've never noticed nipples. I know that they have to exist because they're mammals, but where are dolphin nipples? Yeah, they're actually, um, they're kind of internal. So that's one, that's really the only way externally that you can tell the difference between a male and a female dolphin. They're not, um, they, they're not, you know, different sizes and some species, the males are larger or the females are more colorful or whatever. Dolphins pretty much look exactly the same. The males can get slightly larger. Um, but if you look externally at their genitalia, um, the males have one long slit with their penis inside and then a smaller slit behind it, which is their anus. But all you see externally are just little slits. Right, right. The females actually have um, a slit with a slit, a smaller slit on opposite sides of it. So think of like a division sign. Okay. Um, and those smaller slits on either side are actually their, their mammaries are located there. So they do have like a small nipple, but it's located just inside that slit. So when the calf latches on, 
they're just going to kind of nuzzle their rostrum right up in there and use their tongue to go in to get to the nipple. Unbelievable. That is so cool. Yeah. it's. I'm constantly amazed that, that this works. Yes. And, and that they figure it out. Yeah. It like, really And they're just cool. born and do that. Like you said, yeah. they, they not only need to know how to swim and to like go up to a place that they don't know exists to get a thing that they haven't felt yet, <laughs> but then they have to bury into the division sign and, and find a hidden nipple and then use their tongue to roll and zipper. These guys should not exist. This is, <laughs> <laughs> that is honestly so fascinating. That's, yeah, especially that's when you think, you know, a person can't walk for, for how long? You know, and a dolphin can do all this stuff day one. That's so, so amazing. Yeah, really, that. really cool adaptation. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about our dolphins that we have here at the zoo. Um, we currently have 12 dolphins, and uh, it's a super fun pod to work with. Uh, we have a lot of variety, definitely. We have um, three of the dolphins here are from our original pod that have been here since 1988 when we opened the zoo here. And two of the dolphins that we have are actually rescued animals. So they have been, they were wild-born. They were rescued for various reasons. They were rehabilitated, deemed non-releasable, and we were able to provide them with a home. Um, we have two dolphins that actually came to us from a d another facility, and then the remaining five were born here. Um, and I've got a chance to be, a, like I said, a part of several of those births, so that's really exciting. So those are our 12 dolphins, and these guys range in age. Our youngest just turned one year old, and our oldest dolphins are in their late 30s. So talk to me about this whole being a part of a dolphin birth thing. What What's it like? What's the experience like as a... As a keeper who loves these animals, finding out they're pregnant, how do you ultrasound a dolphin and take me all the way through, you know, little zipper tongue popping out and getting ready to roll? <laughs> so a lot of training comes into play. Um, the, all of our dolphins are trained for a lot of medical behaviors, and that includes something like ultrasound. So they're already very familiar with that. So when they become pregnant, we can very easily track the pregnancy. In fact, we'll actually track their ovulation before they become pregnant so that we can pretty much pinpoint the exact moment at which they become pregnant so we can see when the egg was released. Um, and all of this is really, really cool information and allows us to really stay on top of things. Um, another thing that's really cool that we've learned is once we know that the female is um, getting quite close to her due date, we'll actually start taking her temperature. Um, and we do that rectally. So we can take her rectal temperature. We'll do that um, at least twice a day, every day, when we know she's close to her due date. And when we see that temperature drop, we know that she's probably within 24 to 48 hours of giving birth. So we can really stay on top of things. Um, when we get to that point where we know we're really close, we're going to have staff here around the clock monitoring, watching them. Uh, we're going to count her respiratory rate of the mom and make sure that she's not in distress. We have a special pool that we can use for the birth. And that pool has sort of like a false floor that's attached to hydraulics. So we can lift the floor up and create a shallower environment if we did need to get hands on and assist the mom or the calf in any way. Um, but we prefer for everything to just happen normally and let mom be mom and take care of the babies. But we do have underwater windows also so we can do above and underwater observations uh, make sure everything is normal. And then, like I said, immediately following the delivery, we're going to be, you know, watching that calf, making sure it's getting, it's good first breaths, making sure it's nursing correctly and 
We really just take very, very detailed records of the whole thing. That's very cool. Um, when you, how messy is a, is a dolphin birth? Because, I mean, it's happening in water, but, you know. Yeah, it is a little. Um, there is definitely a little bit of blood, but it dissipates pretty quickly. Um, and then um, following the delivery, the female will actually then pass her placenta. So we collect the placenta as well, and we send it to our vet hospital, and they examine that, make sure everything looks healthy there, and that the full placenta was passed. Um but yeah, it's, it's usually yeah, a little bit of a cloudy mess, but not too bad. That's very cool. That's, yeah. That's cool. And you guys obviously have amazing filtration to, to be just because they're, they're peeing, they're pooping, they're doing all the things in the water. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. The entire lower level of this building is just all holding tanks and pumps and filtration. Um, got sand filters. We actually have an entire staff that's just dedicated to what we call life support. And it's just maintaining the water quality of all of our pools. We have someone who works in the lab, a water quality specialist, who measures all of the different levels of, of the salinity, the temperature, everything in the water, make sure that it's disinfected properly, and uh, and then all of our our um, life support technicians can also you know fix any anything that needs to be fixed and check on the pumps and the filtration, all that stuff. And they work um, first, second, and third shift, so they're here around the clock, wow. um, all the time to make sure that everything's working well for the animals. That's so cool. Yeah. And also life support just sounds like such a, that's, that's, that's the perfect name for it. Not only because it is, but because it just sounds so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say to anyone listening, um, if you have not had the chance to go behind the scenes at an aquarium, uh, or, or any zoo that offers a behind the scenes tour of like a dolphin area or pinnipeds or anything like that, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, most of them will show you. Uh, the filtration systems and stuff and they have all different kinds and it's really cool they'll do like a sand filter thing and a protein skimmer and just amaze it seeing the way that they do it and you can actually watch the water being filtered at a lot of these places is beyond fascinating it's just it's it's well worth doing uh any chance you get um cool so okay take my podcast back over <laughs> Well, I know I touched base a little bit on training uh, when I talked about how we ultrasound the dolphins, um, but I wanted to really go more in depth with training because that's a huge part of my job. Um, it's a lot of what I do is just spending my time um, analyzing the animal's behavior and then also training them. So we have a lot of reasons for why we train and a lot of really cool things that we spend our time working on. So I want to touch base on some of those things. But I want to start by saying that anyone who works with animals or even really just your cat or dog at home, if you're not doing any kind of training, I feel like you're really missing out on a huge opportunity to improve that animal's quality of life. Um, and that's really what our approach is when it comes to training. We look at all of the benefits that it can provide for us, but most importantly, all of the benefits it provides for the animals that we work with. And one of the biggest ones is that it allows us to provide stress-free care. So with an animal like a dolphin that lives in the water, um, if they don't want to do something, they can just swim away. And there's no way for me to really force them to do something that they don't want to do. And I know we touched base on this too with the walrus. Um, you know, they get to be 4,000 pounds. So I don't really have a horse in that game. I can't, I can't force a 4,000-pound animal to do something that they do <laughs> not want to do. So um, it really comes down to having a good relationship with the animal, having that positive rapport, and having a high degree of trust established. And that allows us to be able to train things that help us to take better care of them. So for the dolphins, um, they have a really big repertoire of medical-type behaviors, one of those being ultrasound. So they're trained to just 
present different parts of their body so that we can put the ultrasound probe on and the veterinarians can kind of evaluate, look at all of their organs, uh, make sure everything looks normal. And just to be clear here for a second, when you're doing these things, they're out of the water. Like they're, well, they're on the very shallow deck of the pool, if you want to say it right. You don't pull them physically out of the water. Correct. But also you're not going in with an ultrasound machine and a scuba tank. And, yes. Yeah. Just, yes. Just so they're right, they're right at the side of the pool. So they'll just kind of float. For example, if we're ultrasounding like their reproductive organs, they'll just kind of float belly up at the side of the pool. Okay. They'll just reach over the side of the pool and put the probe on. So nice. yeah, they don't need to come out of the water. We don't need to go dive down to the bottom of the pool to get them. They'll just come right over and just float at the side of the pool so we can check them out. Um, we also have been training things like x-rays. So sometimes, depending on the position we need to x-ray them in or the body part we need to x-ray, we do need to get them out of the water. And for that, they've actually been trained to voluntarily beach themselves up onto land. And oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and they're really comfortable and familiar with that because we do that almost every single week to weigh them. We have a scale that sits right at the side of the pool, and they'll just beach themselves up onto the scale. We'll get a weight, and they'll slide right back into the pool. So they're really familiar with that type of behavior. So we can do that for other things. Um, sometimes we'll do that for trying to collect a urine sample or, like I mentioned, for trying to get an x-ray of different parts of their body. They're also trained to uh, let us hold on to their tail flukes. And that's a really good position from which we can collect a blood sample. They have very pretty prominent veins running through um, the, the underside of their tail flukes. And that's the main location that we will collect blood from. So that's another really, really useful behavior. Um, and of course, anytime we're going to be poking a needle into them, whether it's for an injection or um, collecting a blood sample, that's not pleasant. If any of you guys have gotten a shot before. And if you haven't, we need to talk about this whole COVID thing, but go ahead. <laughs> it's not fun. Um, and it hurts a little bit. And we understand that. And we know that it's not going to be the most pleasant experience for our animals. And uh, like I said, that's where we just need to have a huge degree of trust. They're not just going to let anyone come up to them and poke them. It takes a long time, a lot of developing relationship, um, and a long, a long history with that animal and a lot of trust built up. Um, because they definitely do feel it just like we do. And the fact that they are cooperative and they allow for that kind of sampling is really a testament to our training program as well as our relationships with the dolphins. So that's going to be, you know, one of the best reasons for why we train our animals because we can do all of this incredible stuff to help prolong their life, improve their quality of life, and uh, we can do it without having a stressful environment. We don't have to restrain them. We don't have to, you know, like holding a cat down at the vet to get him a shot. It's not fun. It's it's stressful for the animal, and that's not what we want for our animals here at the zoo. So we train all of that to be uh, voluntary and cooperative. Very cool. And actually, I'm just going to do a quick interjection that has nothing to do with dolphins. But if you are listening at home and you have a cat or dog or herp or anything— um, and you're thinking about that and you're thinking about how vets will hold down an animal and your animal will freak out or whatever. Look into something called fear-free certification for vets. It's becoming more popular now. Um, Zoe is fear-free certified, uh, level one right now, which is how I know about this, but there are vets that are taking extraordinary steps. Obviously they don't have the personal relationships and they don't have the, the training with the animals, but there are vets that are taking extraordinary steps to make your animals more comfortable and to avoid things like holding down a cat or something like that. 
Um, and I highly recommend looking into fear-free certification for vets, uh, especially if you have an animal that's freaking out when, when it goes to a vet. It could change the entire experience for you. And now, back to dolphins. Yeah, we've actually, um, we've at the zoo here, we've worked with some local vets in the area that are working towards that certification. So they'll come here and they'll kind of see the way we do things and give them an opportunity to ask us questions. So yeah, that's a good point that you brought that up. Oh, that's so cool. I (laughs) I love what zoos do so much. That's the kind of thing that like, I wish I could get more zoos and more PR people and stuff to like talk about. How do I not know that Indianapolis Zoo is helping vets learn how to be fear-free certified? That's incredible and will have an impact on the whole community. And that's, that's, I'm so glad you shared that. That is, I have, I have literal goosebumps right now. Little <laughs> things like that are, are so important and are so cool. I just, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. It's a great way, I think, for us to be involved in, uh, like you said, in the community and more than just what we do, but to kind of share our skills and what we know about animal behavior with other people. So yeah, we were happy to do that. Um, but as far as like being an animal behaviorist and providing the best life for our animals and all that, it's also really important for us to provide opportunities for them to problem solve and also to maintain their physical fitness. So if you've ever seen a dolphin in action, you know that they're highly athletic animals. So it's really important for us to give them opportunities to exercise, get all that physical fitness. And that's where training some of those really fun aerial type behaviors comes in. And training anything novel or new to the animal is also going to be a really fun problem solving opportunity for them. So dolphins are constantly thinking, they're using their mind In the wild, they would be problem-solving when it comes to hunting and coordinating as a group for activities like that. In our facilities, we can get really creative with our training to give them the same opportunities for problem-solving when it comes to learning something new or learning how to cooperate with the other dolphins in their pod to accomplish a behavior. So that's something that we also focus on with training. Um, And it helps us to share these unique traits with our zoo visitors as well. So because they're they're trained to do so many things for all of these other reasons, we can also do that to demonstrate to our visitors what their natural athletic abilities are like um, or how they can develop these close relationships with their trainers and those sorts of things. So we can do presentations. We can bring guests back and have one-on-one programs that are going to allow them the opportunity to connect with a dolphin and form kind of a special little bond with the dolphin that they met because that dolphin was trained to interact with them in a certain way. And that is going to have all of our zoo visitors leaving with a renewed sense of appreciation for the animals and kind of a renewed excitement about like, oh my gosh, I got to meet a dolphin and it was so special and feeling like, you know, maybe they could do a little bit more in their home life to help protect animals like dolphins in the wild. So that's a huge goal of ours. Our dolphin presentation right now actually really highlights the use of single-use plastics and how we can try to reduce or eliminate that and how it's going to directly impact uh, dolphins and other animals that live in the ocean. And even living in a place like Indiana, where we don't have any coastline, um, we, we still are connected to the ocean. And we want everybody to realize that what you do here is going to make an impact on the oceans and on the whole planet. Absolutely. It is. That's, that's so cool. Um, Oh, I'm just so fascinated by just all of the things. Um, but so I think the next question that I was going to ask you was literally, you guys do a dolphin show and I know there are detractors, but man, you just, you just nailed that one to the wall. You are, you are very, uh, 
I really like how you phrased some of that. That that's that's great. And they are doing natural behaviors, and it is interesting to me. Um, I've seen dolphins in the wild a few times now, and you see them jumping and porpoising and. All of the behaviors that are put on in the show, I've even seen them splashing people on a dock. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're just silly, goofy, intelligent animals. And um, awesome. So I did have a question for you, though, um, about the SSP and the relationships that dolphins have. So you mentioned that um, dolphins form pods and have these really deep relationships. But I also know that for obvious, you know, reasons, um, they need to move from time to time for, for our standard SSP reasons. You all, if you're listening, you know, we've talked about it, uh, genetic diversity for breeding and all that stuff. How do dolphins do with that kind of thing? And do you guys have to take any special considerations into like, Oh, can we break up this pod for, for breeding purposes? Uh, Yeah, there is kind of a lot that does go into that with moving dolphins around. Um, We, of course, want to make sure that the dolphins are of an appropriate age to be moved. So we would never separate, for example, a young calf from its mother, especially if that calf was still needing to nurse, um, unless there was some extreme emergency reason to do so. Um, Like, for example, we've had rescue animals that were still at nursing age and... um, you know, there was no way to really place them back with their moms. We can't relocate their pod. We're not sure where they came from. They may be stranded on a beach. And so that would be like a scenario where we just have to take that animal in and do the best we can with it. Um, but as far as moving animals from facility to facility, um, a, a lot of thought goes into that in determining what makes the most sense. Um, and oftentimes it's in the animal's best interest. Um, so a lot of times it's be like, you know what? this guy just isn't really fitting in with our pod really well, and we want to find a better social opportunity for him. So they're going to look at other facilities that have room and could take in other dolphins, and and a lot of times it really is in the animal's best interest. And like I mentioned with that Fish and Fusion Society, there is naturally a lot of breaking apart, coming back together. Um, And also most facilities have opportunities to house their dolphins that way, just because they have a multitude of pools and different areas and spaces that their animals can be in. So they can, you know, separate. Right now we have um, two males that are pair bonded. There are adult males and they really enjoy being together, spending time together. So those guys can kind of go hang out on their own for a little bit and then rejoin our larger group. And that would just be a natural kind of continuation of what we would see out in the wild. Um, they have also left to spend time at other facilities and then come back to our facility And that's kind of where we've done some of the cool studies, too, with their signature whistle, where we can see that the animals remember their signature whistle when they've been somewhere else. And so, so yeah, I think that it is, uh, for the most part, relatively natural when it comes to the consideration of their natural uh, social dynamic. And also a lot of thought goes into making sure that it's the best decision for that animal. Very cool. Uh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, did you have other things? Uh, yeah, I, see I wanted your notes to... over there. They're very, very thorough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, I wanted to touch base on conservation a little bit because that's a huge part of why we exist as a facility. Uh, we are a conservation organization that just happens to also be a zoo. So, um, we give a lot of money every single year to a variety of different organizations that focus on conservation. We also cooperate with a lot of researchers to do uh, work with our animals here. And that's another another reason why we train. And our dolphins have participated in hearing studies. They've participated in uh, global welfare studies. 
um, to make sure that, you know, they have excellent welfare and we're giving them the best quality of life we can. Um, so all of that is really going to help broaden our knowledge of the species as a whole. Um, but there also are some other organizations that are doing some fantastic work that I wanted to uh, make sure that they got a little bit of attention, a little bit of airtime. Um, the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, um, they work their program through the Brookfield Zoo in the Chicago area. And it is the longest running study um, of a dolphin group in the world. They've been following the same group of dolphins for over 50 years. So they've been able to collect a lot of really invaluable data as far as um, the animal social groupings and what's normal for them. They've been tracking every death, every birth. Um, they know so much about these animals. They know where they go, who they like to be with, what they like to eat. Um, and that's really invaluable information. So the fact that they're supported by a zoological institution is, I think, speaks a lot to how much zoos actually do for conservation. Yeah, that's really amazing. And again, like you said, it's Brookfield. It's Chicago. Mm -hmm. They are not exactly sitting on an ocean, just like y'all aren't here in Indy. And yeah, that's, uh, that's very cool. Yeah, they are a nonprofit and they do accept donations. So if anyone wants to look into that and see if there's any way that they can maybe assist with the work that's being done there, um, that would be really helpful. Do you happen to have a website offhand? I don't offhand. I'll, I'll edit it in. It's fine. Yeah. If you search the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, you'll find it. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting, Interrupting John. For more information on this incredible organization, you can go to sarasotadolphin.org. And, you know, as I'm saying this right now, I'm realizing that my butt is currently sitting in Sarasota, Florida. So uh, I make no promises, but uh, I'm going to be reaching out to these guys as soon as I'm done editing this episode. And, and we'll see if I, if I can't go and... and let them tell you a little bit more about what they do. No promises, y'all, but hey, this is how the pod works, right? We're going to try. Get it? Pod? Dolphins? Oh, I'm so excited about that. Anyway, back to the interview. Um, and then there's also two, two facilities that we worked with directly in Indianapolis that do a lot when it comes to rescue and rehabilitation of marine mammals. And uh, one is Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida, and the other is the Texas Marine Mammal Stranding Network. And they also, um, you know, they'll operate off of donations and any help they can get, volunteer work. And we have received rescue dolphins from both of those facilities. And, um, you know, th those animals would not be alive today if it wasn't for them being available and being willing to step in and help them. Yeah, I can't speak to the Texas facility that you mentioned, but I have been to Moat. And Moat is amazing. And the people there are so fired up and so passionate. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, that I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning them on the pod because that is an incredible uh, organization. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. All right. And then um, I, guess, I guess it's time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. <laughs> okay, so with dolphins, it's a little different. It's a little unique. So we talked about their filtration. We talked about how that's keeping the pool clean. Um, we do actually scuba dive pretty regularly in these tanks to kind of scrub them down and keep them clean. But for the most part, filtration takes care of all that stuff. However. You're cheating as a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, however, though, we do do um, a lot of programs where we can bring guests back to meet the dolphins up close. And uh, some of those programs are just poolside, where you just kind of sit down at the side of the pool. You get a chance to see them. Um, we have a painting program where the dolphins will create a painting for you to take home. I want a dolphin painting. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really you know cool. you can paint with dolphins. I assume they're watercolors. They are not. They <laughs> so are I not. I had to make the bad joke. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Um, but one of our uh, more extensive programs is our Dolphin in Water Adventure. And that's where you actually, there's a, a whole educational component that actually takes place in this classroom that we're seated in right now. And then they, they get suited up, they put a wetsuit on, and they get in the water with the dolphins. So it is not a swimming program. That's amazing. Yeah, but you'll get in like a waist-deep platform, so you'll be able to get nice and close to them in their environment, and it's really a great way to, you know, kind of see what it's like to be a trainer, and if you just really want to get really close to dolphins, um, you get a front row seat at one of the presentations as a part of it. It's, it's really a great chance to get close to them, get in their environment, um, but, uh, you know, things don't always go as planned. That's that's the case when you're always working with animals, isn't it? So, um I mentioned the dolphins are trained to kind of float belly up, and that's a good position for us to do something like an ultrasound or just check out their bellies. It's also a really good position to give them a nice little belly rip. So we'll do that a lot when we have guests in the water. We'll ask the dolphins to float with their belly up, and we'll have people come over and get a chance to kind of give them a little rub down, touch their bellies, and um, occasionally while you're doing this, the dolphin feels the need to relieve themselves. So, you know, you'll just all of a sudden see a little volcano of poo <laughs> coming up and you just kind of splash some water on it and try to splash it away. And, and that's a really good time to remind the guests that, you know, you're swimming in their bathroom. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely. Happened. Very cool. Um, Erica, you are amazing. Thank uh, you. you, you are such an incredible guest. You are so knowledgeable. I love one of the things that I love about zoos is just the fact that, that, like you said, here we are in the middle of this landlocked state. And there is this incredible human who is super knowledgeable about marine mammals, and it just makes no sense, but it's also the coolest thing ever. Um, I definitely wanted to talk about the dolphins and pinnipeds here, and you knew so much about dolphins, it's, it's a whole episode. So we have to do another one down the road. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll talk about more, but thank you so much. This has meant the world, and you came in on a day off to do this, so thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm always happy to, to share what I know and inspire more people to care for the ocean. Just the coolest human. I love it. <laughs> So, after sitting in the dolphin classroom and having that conversation, and yes, in case any of you are wondering, I did ask Erica how they get all of the dolphins into the classroom for their schoolwork. She at least pretended to be amused, so, you know, she's kind, too, on top of smart and awesome. Anyway, so then I asked if we could go hang out with some dolphins, and in fact, we did. We started off by me asking her to have them demonstrate some of their communications noises. Yeah, okay. I'll just ask him for a bunch of different vocals whenever you're ready. Already recording. Up here, we're gonna take a step back. 
And Erica did slide them up onto the side of the pool a little bit more so that I could get a better look at the dolphins. And then she went ahead and showed me some of the behaviors that she has taught the dolphins. That's right, y'all. I don't mean to brag, but I got my own private dolphin show. And it also included Erica teaching me some of the hand gestures that she uses with the dolphins and then letting me get the dolphins to do their behaviors and feed them their fish as reward. It was so stinking incredible. It also got me thinking, and sadly I wasn't recording at this point because I was covered in water and fish bits, um, but I asked Erica how you train a dolphin to do a particular behavior, especially given how complex some of the behaviors are. She told me that it's just like training any animal, really, that you start with a very small, basic form of the behavior— and then encourage them to, be it in this case, leap higher or do more spins or whatever the more advanced behavior may be. The most interesting part of this to me, though, was that she told me that the hand gestures associated with the different behaviors also grow and make sense. In other words, as the behaviors become more complex, the hand gestures that tell the dolphins what to do become more complex as well, and just as the behaviors grow, so too do the hand gestures. Each gesture becomes more complex, but is related to the more basic gestures that came before it, just like each of the requested actions that goes with those hand gestures are related to each other. I found that incredibly fascinating. And I am just incredibly grateful to Erica Allen and the Indianapolis Zoo for letting me come and have this amazing, amazing experience. You can check them out online, indianapoliszoo.org or at Indianapolis Zoo on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, friends, the word credits backwards may be Stydirk, but fake dolphin fart noises sound like this. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.